Welcome to the Battery Technology Podcast, sponsored by Munters, experts in climate control systems for safe, high-quality battery cell production and R&D, delivering stable, low dew point conditions whilst minimising energy use. Episode 14, the role of resource efficiency in the demand for critical minerals. We hear a lot about the exponential growth of the market for EV batteries and the consequential intensity that that will bring onto the supply chain for critical metals. And there is no question that the market for mined ores will continue to grow rapidly. But of course, as I remember from my economics lectures, the scale of that market is determined by both the supply profile and the demand profile for those minerals. And it's the demand side of that equation that I wanted to concentrate on in this episode. And I'm joined by Julia Poliskanova of T&E to discuss those demand side characteristics and whether the inexorable rise in demand for critical minerals is something we just have to take for granted or is there more going on beneath the surface? Well, I am delighted to be joined by Julia Boscanova, who's the Senior Director of Electric Vehicles and Batteries for Transport and Environment, who are a leading NGO in the zero emission mobility space based in Belgium. So firstly, uh, welcome to the Battery Technology Podcast, Julia. Hi, hi, Ken. Thanks a lot for having me. Let's just set the scene. It might be interesting for me just to understand a little bit about yourself, a little bit about transport and environment and the work you do in terms of influencing uh, decisions and behaviour in this space. Yes, absolutely. So uh, transport and environment, or t as, as we're more often, uh, more often known uh, as, uh, we are today Europe's largest uh, green mobility group. So we really work towards a mobility system with uh, that is fully decarbonized, uh, zero emissions, but also with the least impact on the health and, and the society overall. So the part of the organization that I lead, which is all the work around vehicles, things like cars, trucks, vans, etc. Within that part, for us, it's all about going electric. So we support full electrification of the vehicle's fleet all across the road uh, modes. But at the same time, we realize that we can't only do that. We also need to make sure that the overall uh, transition is really sustainable uh, and and, and fair. And that's why we work a lot on sustainable batteries. And more recently, we also started working a lot on critical minerals themselves that go into the batteries, which we need to make sure are also sourced responsibly. Great. And that's what I want to talk about today. And we want to talk about both sides of the critical minerals market, so both the, some of the supply side issues, but particularly interested me on the demand side. And I know you've been doing quite a lot of work on the demand side as well. But of course, your influence at T&E is, and, and the work you do at T&E also covers the supply side issues as well. So might be worth us just understanding the current projections on critical minerals in the coming decades, if kind of nothing changes. Uh, where are we heading? What is what's the trajectory that we're that we're moving on at the moment? So, if we look specifically in Europe, I think most listeners will know that generally it will be exponential growth, right? But let's look specifically at at Europe. If Europe is to meet most of its climate targets, especially in terms of electrifying its trucks, its cars, its buses, etc., by twenty fifty, that will mean that cumulatively we will have to consume two hundred times more 
of metals such as lithium, nickel, manganese, and cobalt that we need in batteries compared to today, right? So that is really a lot. It's generally in 2050, it will be 10 times more than in 2022, but cumulatively, it's a much, much more significant, significant volume. But I do want to add the one caveat here. I think it's really important to look into this in, in perspective and put it a bit in, in, in perspective. Generally, overall in 2050, we will still be mining a lot less than today because the vast majority of mining is coal and other fossil fuels like oil and gas. So we're still talking an order of magnitude less than today. We're talking about million tons of battery materials, so 20 million tons in our analysis, versus billion of tons that we extract today. So yes, we will need a lot more of some minerals, but we will reduce a lot of fossil fuel extraction. Right. So what you're saying there is, is the totality of minerals mining and cumulative will actually fall if we make this transition to the to EVs rather than dependency on, on oil and coal and things like exactly. that. Just one question though in relation to that. Is there enough reachable critical minerals? Because obviously as as we move down that particular pathway, the quality of ore and the complication of extraction are both moving against us in the sense of we'll be it'll be more difficult to get the ore the ore that we get will be probably of a lower quality than today is that a worrying factor is that something that is your features in your models in terms of this transition from carbon-based to minerals-based options so we don't look in detail into the quality of the ore in, in the reports and analysis that we do. What we do look at is the overall reserves. When we look at overall reserves, we know that there is enough. And actually for Europe to electrify all of its transport modes, we will still only need about a tenth of the known reserves that we have of things like you know lithium, nickel, cobalt, etc. I don't believe that the availability of reserves or materials actually will be a problem. If we look throughout history, we see that we either improve our production methods and we do things more efficiently, especially when the, the, the ore quality reduces, right? Or we simply find new deposits or we find innovations and we substitute where we don't have materials. But there will be many issues. So while availability is not an issue, as I said, I think the issues will be at least twofold. One, to actually extract and source all of that in the time frame that we need, because a lot of these things, uh, you know, an average mine takes a decade to come online, right? So I actually do think that we will see a crunch for critical minerals like nickel or lithium by the end of this decade, exactly when a lot of climate goals are really ramping up. But the second, and, and in my view, even more major concern is whether or not we'll be able to extract this all at the same time as minimizing the impacts of this extraction on the environment and the people, right? What about water pollution? Will be, we be able to do this responsibly and quickly? Will the communities be on board or will there be many delays to do things responsibly? And I think they're really critical questions. Maybe I, I add one, one more thing here. I think when we talk about um, oil uh, versus minerals dependence, it is worth keeping in mind the difference in the way we use these minerals. With coal or oil, you extract and you burn it straight away. They're your running costs, right? You need it all the time. And if there is a global shock, it impacts you straight away. It's very different with minerals. You extract, you turn this into products, 
you use the products for a while and then you can recycle. So with the right policy, you can actually build in resilience and long-term preparedness into your system so you're not so prone to global shocks. Because there is a, a point that I've heard from people that, that essentially say, hey, aren't we just replacing an economy based on oil dependency and replacing that with an economy based on critical mineral dependency. We're simply changing, switching the dependencies, if you like. I mean, what's your, what's your reaction to that? I think it all depends on what policies we've put in place now and how we do this. I think if done badly, we absolutely can simply replace one dependency on another. You know, if we constantly, first of all, extract, 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 so we don't do circular loops. But secondly, we still have rather concentrated markets. So we don't work towards more global, you know, markets where more countries participate, more countries benefit. Absolutely, we will just continue the, the resource curse, as it's sometimes known. But... If we do build inter, and that's what we're trying now to do in Europe via, for example, battery recycling mandates, we build into the system the requirements to recycle, to make products with recycled minerals, to recycle them at the end, to, to really prioritize recycling in our critical minerals policy, then we can actually do differently. There is no reason why, in a good scenario, we can't actually, uh, we will need to, in the next decade, extract more minerals, no question about it. But once we reached enough minerals for the system, there's no reason why we can't just then almost constantly just recover recycle, you know, and, and mostly make it circular, as opposed to just ditch it in a landfill and, and mine again. We're lucky in the sense of that we're starting this industry, if you if you like, with a with an understanding of our responsibility to the earth in terms of recycling. Uh, the coal-based and, and carbon-based uh, industries didn't really start from that perspective. So very interesting to get into the demand side of things as well, because you know, clearly we know there's going to be some pressures on supply. But of course, supply is only one part of that equation, because on the other side of that equation is actually, is there anything, anything at all we can do to mitigate the demand side so that we can balance those two sides of the equation a little better than currently? Could you just kind of start that off by just maybe just talking through some of the work you've done on the demand side and, and what that is telling us about what our potential options are going forward? Right, absolutely. So what we uh, we as an organization uh, generally have expertise largely in electric vehicles, right? So downstream of this entire supply chain. And what always amazes us is when we talk about critical minerals, be it in Europe or globally, we always talk about the supply as if the demand is a given, right? But the demand is not a given. It's actually driven by many factors I'll go into in, in a second. And what is really important to understand is especially regions like Europe that do not have huge mining capacities, for them, the biggest lever to influence uh, their the critical minerals policy is actually work on the demand to make themselves, you know, using less and needing less. It's it's almost it's not just an environmental policy to mine less. It's a sound economic policy when you have scarcity of materials. So what we wanted to do in our report, we published now a few months ago uh, in called Clean and Lean. So do check it out if you're interested. I'll make sure there's a link to that report on the show notes for the podcast for people to look at. It's a really fascinating report and I, I would encourage people to read it. Thanks. Thank you, Ken. So what we have done in this report 
uh, we looked at the at the demand that Europe will need to meet its climate goals, notably because we looked specifically at batteries, we looked at a full electrification of the fleet, and we developed a few scenarios. So business as usual, as I said, you know, humong, very, very huge increase in minerals, so we just do business as usual. Business as usual means people still buy large vehicles, everyone just drives to the supermarket to do some shopping, and, and generally we continue using the chemistries we more or less use today. We've, of course, integrated all the industry trends into that, right? So just kind of the usual business as usual as, as the likes of usual forecasters predict. And then we developed two more scenarios. One was the more middle, middle ground scenario where we do... Um, we do more of, for example, smaller, more compact, efficient vehicles. Uh, we do more innovative chemistries, and people also just do less, use less of their private vehicles. So there's less of privately driven kilometers. And a final scenario, you know, what if we do all of it to the maximum? So I'd like to actually discuss some of this, some of this, some of these findings. The most important thing to stress is in all of this, the most one most important factor that can really reduce our demand for battery minerals by 2050 is actually simply downsizing the cars and the batteries themselves. I don't know how many listeners know, but uh, if you look around today, you'd think everyone just wants a big car. But just under just a, about a decade ago, only 5% of Europeans bought SUVs, those big vehicles. Rewind 10 years, more than a half of people are buying SUVs, right? And I'm not just talking about electric. The problem is with petrol cars, with diesel cars, etc. We haven't got much bigger as people. We don't have three more kids. Why is that? And it's not because of people's preferences, really importantly. It is because it's a profit strategy of the automotive industry because they make more money on selling big cars. So they promote them, they market them, they want you to buy that vehicle. And just by moving to more compact electric vehicles, so going back to the market as in 2010, right? I'm not talking about a revolution, just going back to 2010 market, we can reduce the amount of lithium, nickel, cobalt, manganese we need by a quarter by 2050. That's very considerable. And is that reduction purely based on the scale of cars in terms of the, the size, the weight of, of cars we buy? So going back to 2010 and simply that profile of car size that we were, that we were purchasing as an economy back then compared to today. Yes, more or less. So there's two scenarios. There's the middle scenario where we look at just going more or less to that profile. And then we also modeled an even more ambitious scenario. So say about 40% of everyone buys a compact car. Still very reasonable, right? We're not forcing everyone into a Fiat 500. And I have nothing against Fiat 500, but that's not the point. There's still big cars on the market for those that need them. But just by forcing the more or less half of the population into rightly sized vehicles, we can reduce it by, by a quarter. So yes, there's, there's, that, that's the potential. Obviously, we're talking about changing behaviours. Changing behaviours is is tricky, difficult, politically problematic. And actually, we're talking here about changing behaviours of two sets of people uh, in the sense of changing the behaviours of automotive manufacturers who are profit-driven entities. They have shareholders. They want to maximise their, their profitability. And also, at the same time, changing the behaviours of the general public to demand cars of a more reasonable scale because we are all driving around in cars which 
essentially are not occupied by people, but is occupied by space. One person, way too big for actually what we need. So how do we attack those two issues? How do we attack, firstly, the problem of the automotive manufacturers financially being recompensed for producing too big a car? And also, how do we attack the issue of changing people's perceptions about what's necessary in a car? That's a really, it's an excellent question and something we as t work a lot on. So I, I'd love to talk about that. Absolutely. So one of the, so there's at least two answers to that. The simplest and most effective way to do both of the things you ask, change consumer behavior as a, as a result, completely change the industrial strategies of car makers is to change our vehicles tax. Our current vehicle taxes are based largely on CO2 emissions. The more CO2 emissions you have, the more you pay, right? So in France, in the UK, now in most places, this is the way the tax is based to adjust to the climate goals that we have. However, what we do not incorporate into that tax is the size and weight of vehicles. Of course, an electric car has zero CO2, but how much embedded carbon it has, for example, in, in all the minerals in it. So one of the best ways is to move and to, to shift the taxes to start taxing the weight of cars, right? Tackle the obesity in the car industry, as we sometimes call it. This is really effective. It does two things. On the one hand, it really shifts the consumer behavior because consumers suddenly can buy much cheaper a smaller vehicle and they get a bigger subsidy on this compared to the larger one. So most people actually make the switch. Taxation is incredibly influential in driving people's behavior. But on the other hand, because more and more people want to buy these cars, because this is where your subsidies are on EVs, car makers adjust their production plans and they start producing these vehicles more. So it's very effective. But it's not the only way. There are other ways also on top to do things. Um, one uh, is a more innovative way today that France has recently done, and it's called social leasing of electric vehicles. The idea is that the government subsidizes leasing of small compact electric cars for around 100 euros a month, very cheap but only small vehicles, and they subsidize them for low-income families. So everyone has access to an EV. But what is interesting, so it's, 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 it's a kind of a subsidy, right? You see why it's helping the people. But what it has also become is a really good industrial policy. Because as part of that, the French government uh, couldn't actually put it out at the time they wanted because they didn't have enough small EVs to actually support. So what they've done, they've delayed the scheme by one year and they worked with car makers for a year to make them actually uh, start introducing you know, plans to produce these vehicles. So it's no surprise that uh, just a few months before the scheme entered force, which is in January this year in 2024, Car makers like Peugeot, Citroën, and others announced small cheap models because they adjusted their plans to this scheme. So that's just another, another way to do it. And, and one final thing, there's also things we can do at European level. We have car CO2 standards for car makers at European level, but what we don't have is some kind of environmental rules for electric vehicles to also reward car makers for doing smaller, more efficient batteries, for example. Thanks for listening to the Battery Technology Podcast. We're very pleased that you've joined us. And as we go into 2024, we've got a lot of new episodes in the pipeline featuring some outstanding guests. And we're going to try to release episodes on a fortnightly basis, which is a bit quicker than 2023, simply because we've got so much to go through. And please, 
if you have the opportunity, subscribe. Maybe leave us a review. That really helps other people find the Battery Technology Podcast. And listenership is growing rapidly with every episode now, getting about 25% more downloads than the one that preceded it. And of course, if there's a particular development that you wish to highlight, please let me know. We're always interested in hearing about the latest advances. My contact details are always in the show notes that accompany each episode. And now, let's get back to this fascinating conversation. Just want to pick up on a point, though, because one of the challenges, I think, is the fact that if we are introducing a taxation system based on weight of cars rather than emission of cars, one of the problems, of course, is that EV batteries are extremely heavy. In fact, in, in some cars, the battery itself can weigh as much as a car did, you know, years ago, just the battery itself. So obviously, there's a bit of a mismatch there. We're talking about a technology which essentially is fairly heavy, the battery, and at the same time, we're talking about rewarding lightness. I guess one of the ways that we can address that is by the chemistry of the battery itself. So I'm just interested if you've got any thoughts on that or whether chemistry plays a part in these strategies for demand mitigation. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, uh, going for resource-like chemistries is the second major issue in our demand report that we looked at that also has a big potential to reduce the demand for minerals, right? So this is the second important topic. It's very, it's, it's, it brings up to 10% reductions from the broader reductions that we saw. So it's, it's also very important. And, and here, uh, what we see is some shift has already begun. So some uh, the shift from cobalt and nickel rich chemistries such as NMC towards uh, chemistries without cobalt or nickel so lithium iron phosphate batteries or LFP is already underway for many reasons for cost reasons actually primarily but it is also helping with that lightness and, and efficiency in the battery so it's already ultimately from the critical minerals you only have lithium in your battery as opposed to also nickel and cobalt so that's happening that's very important um well, clearly that also helps in the appalling issues that we see in terms of cobalt mining Indeed, indeed, absolutely. But on top, but we don't have to stop here, right? So today we, we already made quite a lot of advancements in, in other completely resource-like chemistries, for example, sodium iron. So that's ultimately using salt, which is abundant, which is not critical in batteries. And two years ago, if we had this podcast, and if you asked me, because I, I like to think that I'm, you know, a bit of a a bit of a geek in batteries, but actually if you asked me, Julia, can we use sodium ion batteries in, in EVs? I would say no only energy storage. And rewind two years and innovation actually made it possible. And, and there were many announcements in, in, in Asia, in China in particular, but just a few months ago, we even heard and saw an announcement from a European player from Northvolt, also investing in sodium mine batteries. So it's absolutely reasonable to expect that in the next five years, we will see sodium mine entering the electric vehicle space, probably from the smaller affordable segment to begin with. And, and then we, we will see, right? And then who knows, right? I think the most important thing that we in Europe, when we talk about critical minerals, that we in Europe should do when it comes to batteries is invest a lot more into research, but also commercialization of this critical mineral light sustainable technologies. 
We quite often in Europe like the higher end of innovation, solid state, for example, really fancy, absolutely necessary, don't get me wrong, but we don't pay as much attention to these more affordable, simpler batteries that will really make the mass market. They will make the mass market and they will reduce our dependency on critical minerals. So it's it's really a no-brainer. And I think our industrial policies and our R&D policies should be adjusted much more towards this front of things. And now... A word from a sponsor. Dryness is golden, especially in battery manufacturing. Vaisala offers world-class measurements with technologically best-suited products for ultra-dry conditions and critical filling and sealing operation. Vaisala knows dry like no one else. Visit vaisala.com battery. Reading the report, the the third aspect of it is a really interesting field. That is essentially is 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 an obvious one, but a really difficult one to achieve, which is this concept of transport switching, moving yourself from place A to place B doesn't necessarily require a car at all. Yes, so this is indeed, as you say, the third major part of our study looking at the demand, simply reducing the amount of privately driven kilometers in cars themselves, which can be done in different ways. It is difficult, it's tricky. And and I can speak on behalf of dozens and dozens of transport campaigners, part of our organization is TNE, who have been trying, even in European cities, where it's easier than, for example, American cities, to reduce, you know, private car kilometers, modal shift, et cetera, for decades. And, 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 and it's been difficult. So it's it's um it's it's difficult, but it has a significant impact. So we're talking about 20 percentage points on average in a really very ambitious or aggressive scenario where, again, we're not talking about everyone going on a bus or bike, but maybe at least 20 percent of those people today using private cars doing it less. Right. 20 percent in this area of work is very is very good, is, is really good. But what I would say is compared to maybe 20 or 30 years ago, we have now learned a lot and we know how to do this. And maybe it sounds controversial, but what I want to say is the most important thing here is not to think so much about the carrot. Everyone thinks about the carrot. Oh, but you need to give an alternative. You need to make that bus really cool and cheap. And we want that shared vehicle everywhere. La, la, la. Yes, that's very good. That's very important, but it's not everything. What you also need is a stick together with a carrot. You need something that will make it a hustle for people to use that private car. It can be parking charges in cities, and cities are experimenting with that, and it's very effective. And it can be most effectively uh, ultra and low emission zones that many cities, including London and Paris and Madrid, are now putting in place. Basically, put it a hustle for people. And what you will see is all of these unnecessary car trips going to a supermarket for 10 minutes will all be reduced because people will be like, right, it's a bit expensive and annoying. I will just, you know, take a bus or walk. This is the way to achieve it. So we need to be doing local policies. Uh, It's not easy. There's been a lot of backlash recently towards that. But I just want to call on local politicians, you know, stay firm. A lot of us really support you. And this is really the way to go. Do you think generationally it's on your side in the sense of as generations move forward and disappear, let's put it that way, the understanding, the appreciation that actually the old way of doing this, just to be driving to the supermarket, is well, it's not good for the planet, it's not good for us, it's not good for anybody. 
that will kind of disappear naturally, if you like, to be replaced by a generation that thinks maybe slightly more progressively about what the options may be for transport. Mm. So I, I'd, I'd like to agree with you, Ken. I'd really like to. But, you know, as I grow older, what I actually see is young people don't use cars. They really don't. And then they move out to suburbia. They have families and they start using cars as well, no matter which generation they are, they are from. So it's, it's, it, it is a generational thing, but every generation gets older, right? So, so you, and, and, and this is okay, right? If you live in suburbia and you do, do longer trips, actually owning an electric vehicle is, is perfect for you. There's nothing wrong with that. But within cities, those people that live in cities, you know, in, in densely populated areas with good public transport. I mean, in London, why would you ever own a car, right? And, and I think this is what I'm talking about. And if we reduce all those inefficient usages of private vehicle, we can already uh, in, uh, achieve a really substantial reduction in the demand for critical minerals. And, and generally a much more pleasant uh, cities and, and, and pleasant mobility system for everyone. So good things I just want to pick up on uh, at the end of this conversation, which has been fascinating. And I'm really grateful for you taking me through this. Firstly, is the role of recycling. We have a, a wonderful opportunity to embed recycling in this economy uh, and in a way that we've never had before. So I just want to talk about what part recycling plays in your projections of demand mitigation uh, and what your thoughts are in terms of what needs to happen in terms of the recycling industry in relation to EV batteries. Right. So recycling, of course, and circularity longer term is one of the core USPs, right, of this transition, as we discussed. Already in the short term, if we get our action into gear in Europe, we can already supply quite a few raw materials from recycling. So our analysis shows that already up to 10% of things like lithium and nickel, and even more for cobalt, can come from recycling by 2030. That's that's really short term. And, and then, you know, up to 15, 20% by, by 2035. Not just from end of life batteries or waste batteries, but also from things like just scrap from all the manufacturing facilities that produce batteries. So the potential is there and we don't need just to wait for all the cars to come to the end of life in, in 20 years. What is a problem today is that in Europe, we don't have enough of the, that industrial know-how and facilities to recycle. Batteries are recycled. It's a myth they're not recycled. They're just recycled in China and they're fed into the battery manufacturing process there, right? We, 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 we agree. So in Europe, we need to make that an industrial policy priority to scale recycling facilities, be it for lithium, be it for nickel, or in the future, you know, for, for other chemistries because it's changing all the time. So we need to stay flexible. And here, a number of policies that we already have and started can be really helpful. Uh, most notably implementing the new Critical Raw Materials Act that has provisions to do some recycling projects as strategic projects for Europe. And, and number two, simply designating batteries as hazardous waste, because this will help then to make it harder to simply export outside of Europe and it will be recycled then here. Is a percentage of your expectation of uh, reduction in demand do you make any assumptions in terms of what proportion of batteries will be recycled? Yes, so we do. Uh, so first of all, when we look at recycling, we actually put recycling into the supply side. So we always show how much of the supply could come from recycling and it's just replacing primary mining. But, you know, let's just say the counting, it doesn't really matter where, where, where it is, right? 
So what we do, we look at the levels of recycling that the European battery regulation uh, mandates, because we're looking largely at lithium, nickel, manganese, and cobalt in our work currently in terms of critical minerals. So in Europe, we will now have laws from the in the next few years where up to 95% of all the cobalt and nickel will have to be recovered from batteries. And uh, in the beginning, a bit less, but further down the line, 80% of all lithium will have to be recycled. So we integrate these targets, plus we integrate how much realistically can come as scrap in the manufacturing of batteries, the gigafactories that are scaling. And altogether, it gives us a volume. And that's the volume we, we, we are modeling. And that's where we see that it's about 10% of our needs by 2030. And it's a lot more by 2035. I actually believe that if we do this really rightly in Europe, by 2040, most of our critical minerals can come from recycling. But it depends on the policies we put in place now, whether or not we scale the technologies, where we're not, we have know-how, and, and that's not yet done. And how optimistic are you? Fascinating work that you're doing at T&E uh, to drive and influence people's thoughts in this area. But how optimistic are you? We we can influence people, we can change people's behaviours to actually bring this to uh, bring this to happen. So if you are in my line of work, which is an NGO trying to shape policies and, 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 and more wider societal change, you have to be an optimist. I'm an optimist, otherwise I wouldn't be able to do what I do, right? What I do believe is that in, in the short term and in the next five, 10 years, it will be easier if politicians stay the course to achieve broader technological and corporate change change in the way vehicles are produced, you know, for example, with scale recycling, I'm a lot more confident about that. I'm a little bit less confident, let's put it that way, about the behavioral side of things. I think it's harder. I think it's different. I think the approach is, is, is different. But I think we just need to remember that the, the largest emitters in the world, the largest change actually does come from, from big corporations. So changing that already brings a lot. And then we simply need to take people with us rather than mandate things on them so much. And by taking them with us more and more, by showing the benefits rather than the, the you know, the, the, the bans, I think it, it, it will be a bit easier. You know, you can ban things. You just don't call it a ban. You show it as a, well, you'll get an affordable electric vehicle. But yeah, you can't use your diesel one. Mm, well, it's okay. You can still drive, for example. Well, that's a great place to leave it. And Julia, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today on the Battery Technology Podcast. It's been a fascinating conversation. I hope you continue in the amazing work you're doing and that, that we all move forward together and realise some of these fantastic opportunities that we have in front of us. Thanks a lot. It was really great to talk. So thanks also for, for giving the opportunity to share all these thoughts with your listeners. Thanks, Julia. The Battery Technology Podcast is a copyrighted GSE Media Limited production. For more details on how to reach us, you'll find our contact details in the show notes or at our website, www.batterytechnologypodcast.com.